Hi, everyone. Welcome to another exciting episode of Bloomberg Intelligence Tech Disruptors podcast. My name is Anurag Grana, and I'm a technology analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence, Bloomberg's in-house research arm. We're delighted to have the founder and CEO of ClickUp, Zeb Evans, as our guest today. We are hoping Zeb will give us some insight around product development and pre-growth initiatives that the company is undertaking. So without any delay, let's ask Zeb about a short history of himself and the company he founded. Yeah, really excited to be here, everyone. So ClickUp is an all-in-one workplace productivity platform that flexes to what the way people work. It generally replaces most workplace productivity tools with a single platform for project management, document management, whiteboarding, spreadsheeting, chat, collaboration, and a lot more. The background of how we got there was my own frustrations with productivity software as a whole. At my first startup, which is a very small company, 20 or 25 people, we literally used 15 different productivity tools in order to get work done. And I was always obsessed with productivity and efficiency. I've actually had five near-death experiences, which each kind of made me obsessed with productivity and efficiency of squeezing every minute that I can out of a day. And I could not help but think how much time we were wasting with 15 different productivity tools. And so ultimately, we built ClickUp as an internal tool at first to work on something entirely different. And that's how we started. It was three or four weeks after we built the internal tool. It wasn't one of those stories where it took us years to realize that this is what we wanted to do. It was very quickly after we started building it that we realized ClickUp is what we wanted to give to the world. And perhaps have a little bit about yourself as well in terms of, you know, a bit of history of how you got involved with technology in general and perhaps even going back to your college days. Yeah, I had always been an entrepreneur. Like since I was born, since I was three or four years old, I was that kid that was selling things and creating experiences. In elementary school, I got suspended a couple of times for, for selling candy and, and Beanie Babies. And then I actually got accustomed to the internet through one of my near-death experiences where I was in the hospital when I was 10. And when I was 10, that was roughly 20 years ago. And I'm from North Carolina and we did not have access to technology back then, but they had a laptop in the hospital. And that was where I started kind of marrying my love and passion for entrepreneurship with my new passion for, for technology. And that was where I, I first started learning to build websites, like just WYSIWYG editor style stuff. I was, certainly was not coding back then. And then jump forward to college. I was actually managing a couple rappers and musical artists and with an entertainment company. And I was doing their social media. And I was just so frustrated with how inefficient the social media was. It was a lot of manual processes. And at that time, I mean, you couldn't even schedule tweets ahead of time. You couldn't automatically engage with people. You had no idea who was following you. And I literally built some tools myself. I learned PHP at the time and, and some Python and built these tools that could essentially automate a lot of what you were doing on social media. And that was how that first company started that I was referring to at the beginning. Oh, excellent. You know, one of the things I have always been baffled by, but because if you look at the productivity applications and we go back, you know, 20, 30 years, there are so many of them. So now you come up and I've seen the customer count that you have seen a massive rise over the last few years, but this space has been around for so long. So what was missing at that point that led you to say, you know what, I'm going to do something different 
because getting people to get away from their legacy product, like, you know, look at Microsoft, for example. I mean, it it's built on Excel and Word. You can say whatever you want, but in the last 20 years, that's what fed the, the next of their bigger products has been fed by either Windows or, or the Office Suite. So what was the catalyst and why? how did you get users to say that, okay, I'm going to try to pick something new? We hear a lot that this strategy had been tried before. And I always ask by, by who, and you know, you hear kind of the industry giants, you hear about Microsoft, but it's very different offering when you're offering several different products under one roof, like you can bundle 10 different products together and sell them as one versus having all of those products inside of one single platform, one single product. And I think that's where you enable this efficiency gain and this productivity gain from having everything in one platform without having to context switch between so many different products. But you also naturally, you know, nobody goes in, in their day and they use 10 different product tools or soft software tools. They're generally going to be indexed more towards one or two. And that's the problem with those other tools is you can combine several of them together to get all of your work done, but nobody actually does that in practical terms. And so what ends up happening is, you know, there's a project manager or there's a team lead or an executive, each indexing on one particular piece of that, that like pie of several different tools. And then nobody's actually on the same page. Everybody's still on very, very different pages. So our whole philosophy was putting all of your, your core productivity tools inside of one platform, therefore enabling efficiency, transparency, and extreme collaboration. The way to do this though, was allowing flexibility and customization that just didn't exist in the industry. When we came along, the tools were very opinionated and how you had to use them. And in fact, that's what created this very much separated ecosystem of software because one tool was so opinionated that you needed to use it for, let's say, engineering. Another tool was more built for marketing. You had to use both of them in order to work for engineering and marketing. And we kind of threw those concepts out the window and really just wanted to build a platform that was highly flexible and had the opinionated features that you need when you want them, but also allowed you to work with the other sides of the business. I know, excellent, very, very well put, Seb. So I'll approach this from another angle, and this is going back several years. I was actually at a Salesforce event looking at their productivity applications or the sales automation application, and they were integrating a new app, uh, a company they bought at that time called Quip. And it did a lot of that, you know, very interesting stuff that two salespeople are talking and they would, you know, embed a spreadsheet in between. And I said, oh, wow, that's amazing. Maybe this will get rid of Excel one day. How? And, I, and I've heard since then many companies that lead off or they are selling productivity applications or back office applications or HR op applications, they have either embedded some of these functionalities in their core applications or they're integrating with, you know, companies like Team or Zoom, et cetera. How do you compete with them? Is that not the natural way of going towards productivity applications? First of all, Quip, Quip is a, a great tool. It really is. I think where, and, and it's, it stayed very much in that simple collaboration space. It didn't have things that were the opinionated features, the things that people really need for a full productivity platform. So it wasn't actually able to replace other tools. And it didn't go deep enough to replace something like spreadsheets. And so I think it was kind of stuck in this limbo phase, which is, is probably a large reason you didn't see that, that really wide adoption from it. But I mean, the, the point is, is very valid is that you need to have extremely great integrations in today's world. And that is part of, of the future. There is no single platform that replaces every single application. What we look towards 
I mean, we love our, our one app to replace them all messaging, but the reality is, you know, that is, it's meant to, to strike curiosity and it is meant for brand marketing, but it's not realistic in what we believe. What we really believe is that we can replace all of your, your core productivity applications at work or connect the ones that we aren't replacing. And, and that's what we've been largely been working on the past six months or so is building a very connected ecosystem where you can have a command center for your work and you can see and visualize all of your other tools from other places, but you still have one central place to view and manage those tools. No, it's a fair point. So, you know, when you sit down and think about your primary competitor, how do you think about it? Do you put them in buckets or do you have a few that, you know, you clearly are trying to either replace or they are, you know, fighting neck to neck to get new user counts? Yeah, each category, we have several different direct competitors. We don't really see it a core direct competitor when it sits above the categories, which is, is really what we've always headed towards is doing several different categories inside of our single platform. So you can look at project management software and you've got Asana, Monday, Trello, you've got document management platforms. And so you'll have Confluence, Notion, there's no code software for automations, things like Airtable. And then you've got a variety of other tools, time tracking, bug tracking, issue tracking. So the Atlassian suite. So there's many competitors in each of those different categories, but we don't today see a competitor that goes above those categories to directly co compete with us, which is, is really where we're headed. And so if I'm a customer and I go out and embrace your product, what am I typically replacing? I guess, what are you disrupting in, in, you know, in other words, or, or is it an extra, extra expense for me in my portfolio? All we care about is getting it, our foot in the door. We have a, a really amazing land and expand motion and our, our net retention is incredibly high, meaning that once somebody comes in, it starts expanding like wild, wildfire. And so what that means is for us is that as long as we get somebody in, a user in for project management software or docs, or time tracking, or one of those, those areas that I mentioned, that's where the magic happens. Because they come in, they find, oh, I love this product that is better than X, Y, and Z. This project management software is objectively best in class. It's better than what I was using before. And therefore, they start using it for that. But then there's no barriers. There's no walls on our product. We don't have to go and sell somebody a new product in order to get them to use it. They're using the same product, and then they just naturally discover Oh, I can do this. I can create docs with this. I can, I can put all of my goals and my OKRs in here. I can chat with my team in here also. And so they start naturally using it and then inviting other people. That's generally the play that, that we like, because to your point, it is, it is kind of a hard sell getting somebody to go replace all of their software, all of their productivity software at once. And so generally that's going to happen over time. And do you see, I mean, the, how do you measure your success uh, that let's say if I'm a user and I spend two hours a day on Excel and three hours on Zoom and all the other productivity applications, do you figure out or do you see how much of time that I spent gets transferred over for some of those apps into your app? How would you measure your success? I mean, other than the, you know, ARR and other retention rates, but, you know, as from a product development point of view, how do you think about it? We love to look at how many products that they're using within our product. And, and you'll see a lot of times that they start with one, like I was mentioning, and then it just incrementally in, increases. So 90% of our active users use four or more of, of our products. And so you can, you can imagine replacing four, four products. You also start to see their daily active time increase proportionately 
with the products that, that they're replacing. And that's what we focus on most because that gets back to, to our real mission of saving people time, making people productive. Yeah, one of the things I remembered watching Salesforce from a very early time period was that, you know, very similar to started with SMBs and went up the enterprise channel. We'll, we'll get to that in a second as well. But let me ask you about just the, the, the number of products. And even in Salesforce's case, you know, when somebody had one product, you could say theoretically their churn rate in the longer term could be high if the, you know, economic activity goes up and down. But when they saw the, you know, somebody using three or four products, the churn rate became very small. I mean, low single digits, even below that. What is your experience being such a young company about, you know, churn rates in general? And have you seen any changes to that? Definitely. The more products you use, the more feature area that you use with, within our product, the lower churn and the higher expansion, the higher retention. So, so very similar story to that. For us, it's also, it's it, the, part of it is about the breadth of the features and the functionality there. The other part is about there isn't really another option for them to use to get very embedded in, in the ecosystem of tools. And they would have to split that out into so many different tools if they wanted to leave the platform. But we've also, I've been very opinionated on having a really incredible feature set and an incredible product offering at a great price. We don't necessarily need to be the lowest price in the market, but at least at a great price. So that when you're looking at, an, from an economic standpoint, not only are you comparing it with just a singular project management solution, and it's a good price compared to a single solution, but when you look at it, three, four, five, six products, it, then the price doesn't even compare because it's, you're still only paying for one, but you get five or six at, at the same time. And so for us, you know, it helps with, of course, if you know, we start talking about macro and, and economic environments, for us, we think that we're in a really great situation because of our, our product offering. No, fair point. So perhaps now dive a little bit into the SMB versus enterprise and would love to get some color from you about, you know, what's your breakdown, what's your exposure, and also in terms of would love to see some use cases across different industries. You know, perhaps tell us how a bank would use it or a hospital would use it or anywhere so that, you know, we can put some, some of that in the context. For sure. So we did start largely SMB and really we started micro SMB. So we started that journey of product-led growth where we didn't have sales at first, very much a viral growth with people inviting other people. And you see that organic adoption. And over time, we started moving up market. Largely still have a, a big SMB base today. But we've moved more towards mid-market, especially for our sales motion. About 50% of our sales are through our sales team today, 50% of our net new sales. And the majority of that is going to be closer to a mid-market customer. We certainly have started doing a lot of enterprise deals and enterprise rollouts and, and adoptions. And you know, we look towards the future of that being a huge opportunity for us and the efficiency and productivity gains. Because really our software, the larger team that you have, the more efficiency that happens through transparency, through collaboration, through communication. A couple of our most popular solutions, certainly software development. What it, our platform allows you to do is do all of your issue tracking and bug tracking, but also work with your product teams and work with your designers and work with the product marketing folks all in a single platform. And it still gives you those very opinionated developer technical features you can turn them on or off inside of the platform. So on the other end of the spectrum, in the same workspace, I have huge common 
solution for us is, is marketing, creative agencies, marketing, design, content creation. And that solution, it can still be packaged inside of the same platform, but it's much more of a simple interface. So when you're a marketing person and you go and see it, you're seeing marketing things, marketing terminology and very common things that you're used to. Whereas if you're an engineer and you come to our software, you're going to see sprints, you're going to see timing roll-ups, you're going to see all of the very complex sprint methodology and agile methodology that you're, you're familiar with. Oh, that's excellent. Now, just in the space, now think about it that, you know, you were founded, I believe, five, six years ago in that time frame. Now, we've been in a bull market since 2009, 10, 2010, 11, interest rates going down. Now we are going into a completely different world, you know, rising rates, global tensions all over the place. How's your... I would say strategy changed in the last six months when valuations for software companies have completely plummeted. We have, you know, issues with people with the stock options. You know, you need massive amount of free cash flow to retain employees. What has been kind of the, I guess, lesson learned and how are you approaching this new world now? Yeah, so we started five years ago and I... Again, when I, where I grew up, there was, there was no such thing as venture capital. And so I built a business by bootstrapping it. So our first three years, we were bootstrapped. And until two years ago, we were highly profitable, highly efficient, highly, highly profitable company. And then we raised capital once we started to understand unit economics and the premise of a land grab mentality. And also being able to defend ourselves from competitors, frankly, was, was a huge thing that was on, on my mind. And so we went from a highly efficient business to raising a lot of capital in order to grow faster and, and in somewhat in, in an efficient manner, but still sustainable. We always had our eyes on, on sustainability. And so now it's just about going back and finding that happy medium. And that's what I'm totally focused on is still growing. You know, we raise at a great time, but also focusing largely on efficiency and focusing on gross margins and CAC payback and revenue per headcount. So we have our eyes now on becoming cash flow positive, positive again, which we will come before we go public. Well, that's excellent. And I wish the best for you on that. Now, within that employee retention, I mean, this has been one of the biggest topics. Uh, in fact, all the surveys we have run, employee shortages, number one of the you know single biggest problem across all industries and all companies, just because everybody wants to be digital. What are you doing to retain employees in this particular time frame, especially with the valuations where they are? There's no perfect sol solution to this, but I largely think that the amount of commitment employees have is based on their happiness with the work that they're doing. And to make people happy with the work they're doing, you've got to find what they love doing. And it's not a one size fits all. You can't just say just because an engineer is here, they're going to love coding. It's really important to find what they're interested in. What do they feel like they're doing that's enabling growth for them? And one of our huge core values, which by the way, our core values are, are real. We actually, we actually do live by them and we measure a lot of metrics by them. It's growing 1% every day. And, and I really believe that if people feel like they're actually growing every day, they feel much more touched and, and committed to from a company perspective, and they're, they're less likely to, to leave. I would look holistically at the talent environment. And I think that hybrid remote work has increased attrition. And, and it's not necessarily that it's, it's such a bad thing, 
But the reality is if you're not in person with people, you're not developing the same connections that you used to. It is, I, I firmly believe that you can, you can retain those connections after you meet somebody in person and you get that real relationship building and that team building mentality in person. So we're huge believers of getting people in person periodically, whether that's once a month or, or every couple of months, get teams in person, do some team building, make people really feel connected and then go remote and you can retain those relationships much more. And that has, has led to like the higher retention for us. Oh no, that's excellent. All of us covered a couple of very interesting companies, uh, Shopify and DocuSign. And in some ways you do remind me of Shopify in the very early ages. One of the things that we saw that during the pandemic, there was a massive pull forward in demand for all productivity applications, and perhaps even, you know, the ones yourself. What did you see during the pandemic in terms of demand and how have things been in the last, I would say, few months and projecting out the next few months as well? Because that pull forward of demand led to very tough comparisons for some of these companies. And if you see both DocuSign and Shopify, their stock prices, you will understand what's happened is uh, their growth rates have slowed down. But, but you know, understandably, and our logic is, or thesis is, it will bounce back, uh, let's say, the year from now or, or a little bit longer uh, just because of that. What has your experience been, uh, both in terms of pull forward of demand and tough comparisons? We've, we saw a very steady demand before COVID, during COVID, and, and af after COVID. And, and I think that you're exactly right. There is, there is a pull forward in, in demand that happened. We believe though that it happened more on the direct communication side of the business. So things like Zoom, things like chat, Microsoft Teams, Slack, those were the tools that people were adopting where they needed to communicate, where they're no longer in person. But tools like ClickUp, which is largely project management software, document management, knowledge management, those things existed before the pandemic and, and they will exist after the pandemic. And so we did see increased usage and increased demand from people that had not really used software before and started dipping their toes in communication software. And then they're like, oh, I'm able to talk with people, but now I need to be able to put my work somewhere. I need to be able to manage my work somewhere and, and understand what we're getting done. And then they started coming into to our ecosystem. And so I don't think we saw that same like boom bust scenario where you saw at, at Zoom, Slack, Microsoft Teams, where you, huge spikes of, of demand happen at any given point. Ours was still very steady. And, and we think that it will continue, continue to be like that even through the, the post-pandemic world. Perhaps give us a little bit of insight about your vision of how you think about product development. How do you go about it in terms of do you get feedback from customers or it's, you know, you have a team that is constantly looking for new features and, and how do you prioritize those? And then a follow-up on that is, you know, what do you think about build versus buy and how have you approached that issue? Yeah, ClickUp was largely built by users. And what I mean by that is very early on, we used a feedback platform. We used Canny, but there's, there's several out there where you can have this direct engagement with your community of product users, where they can request features, they can add complaints, they can add praises. And I'm the very much the, pro the product founder. I was in those forums every day. I lived and breathed in those forums and lived and breathed feedback. I read every single piece of feedback that came in through our customer support departments also. What we were able to do is just scale that. So where we built a system for it, data ingestion, we now have teams of people that, that are working on that exact same thing that, that I used to do. 
And that has really enabled us to know what customers are thinking at any given point, what users have pain points for, what they're looking for next, market trends. And we take all of that together to really build our roadmap. And, and we largely prioritize it based on what users want the most. There's certainly a, a little other piece of that, which is, is our vision where, you know, users aren't necessarily requesting these things. And so we've got to layer a little bit of our opinionated vision on, on top of that. But that has been how we, we built product since day one. As far as build versus buy goes, there are situations that we look for buy when it means that we can acquire some technology and an amazing team that can take that technology that they built and either integrate into our platform or rebuild it, knowing all of what they knew from the past. Anybody that builds something a second time is going to do it much better, arguably in order of magnitude better than the first time, because you're really just totally figuring it out. You're making a lot of mistakes and you're like, damn, I wish I would have done it this way along the way of that journey. If you do it a second time, you can go back and, and do it close to, to a perfect way. And so we've made a couple of, of those by acquisitions. One of them is for, for universal search so that you can search all of your applications from one place. And that allows you to prevent people from having to go to different applications all day long to find the document that they're looking for or find the message or the email or whatever it may be. You can finally just search from, from one place. And we're in beta testing now for that and releasing that in the next couple of months. No, fair point. You know, one of the things that I've seen in downturns is CIOs tend to say that, okay, I have multiple point product applications. Can I consolidate them and, uh, you know, go for a platform? And even if it's not the best, if it's even very close, I may just go with that to it, not just a matter of saving money, but also, you know, less hassle of managing that uh, given, given all the issues with the labor supply. Do you run into that or have you started to run into that? And how do you tackle that problem? We see multiple perspectives from, from CIOs or, or from people that are really responsible for rolling out the software through an org organization. Some of them prefer the best in class scenarios where they really want everything best in breed. For us, an entry point there is project management software. We can go there and we really can show them that currently we have the best in breed software off offering for this. And just like I was mentioning earlier, there's no barriers in our product. So they start a project management software and then they start to see it gets adopted for other things. And so it happens naturally instead of us having to, to force it. On the flip side of that is, you know, especially recently, their CIOs are looking for consolidation primarily for price reasons, be able to save money on, on software. That's a great entry point for us also. Even if we just go in and we sell two things to them, we sell two products, again, in the form of one product, but we can pitch them and say, hey, this, we can combine your project management software and your docs, maybe, and your other collaboration software in one, and we're only going to charge you for one. That's a, a really great value proposition to a CIO. So, so we can kind of go on both ends of the spectrum. You know, one thing we didn't touch on, and, and I should have done my research on it, is how do you price these? Is, is it by functionalities or is it like all you can eat? How do you price these products? And I guess, why did you price it that way? What makes more sense for you in the long run? Yeah, we price the platform as, as a whole, not, not products in, individually. And that was more strategic for us to the two points that I was, I was mentioning. You don't have barriers inside of the product. So if you price per product, then users come in 
and they see something else as paywalled, or maybe they don't even have access to a particular piece of the platform, then they're just not going to use it, right? Their behavior is going to change and, and get around that. So strategically, we never wanted to price for, for a product. And on the same end of the spectrum for that CIO example, then we would have to bundle all these different pricing points together. And then for them, it's like, well, why even do that if I have to pay for multiple products? So instead we charge per platform pricing based on, generally it's going to be based on how large the team is, even though we don't have caps of the team amount. But our first, our, we have actually have a free forever plan that largely small teams could use that free forever plan as an entry point into our product. Our unlimited plan starts at $5 per month per user. And then our business plus plans go up to 20 to $25. And then our enterprise plans are, are sli slightly higher than that. But those price points are, are really competitive, even when you look at just like a singular uh, piece of the product. That's very interesting. Mike Flumberg started when the company, he had the similar approach of you know, pricing on a platform rather than by portfolio. So I completely understand what you're, what you're going after. Perhaps give us an example of how I, as a user, start with a free plan. And over time, I go and, you know, mature to the last one that you have mentioned. Take me to a journey because I'm sure, you know, somebody started off at free and then got somebody in the company to embrace it and the entire department to embrace it. Would love to hear a real life example on either a vertical or a customer journey here. Yeah, it's a great question because largely, especially early on, our product grew from this self-serve virality. And so what that means is you come into our product and you sign up and you're not asked to pay, you're just start using it. So that would be our free forever plan. So you start using the product, you see the value out of it, and you become adopted to several of the features. Over time, you start using storage. And so we have a storage cap on the free forever plan. And what will happen is we'll tell you, hey, you're coming up on your storage amount. Would you like to upgrade to remove the storage limit? And then a team upgrades to you remove the storage limit. Then more at what happens over time for, it can be anywhere from weeks to months is they start to see, oh, there's, there's some really cool other features here that I don't have access to yet, but I'm trying to use them. Maybe it's that I'm using our OKR product but we're limited on the KPIs that can be reported from that OKR product. So they say, oh, let me upgrade to our business plan. And then a similar thing happens to the business plus plan is more, generally it's going to be when you get more people into your same workspace where you need more custom permissions and advanced permissioning for larger teams. And then that's when you, you would upgrade to kind of our, high, our highest tier plan. Now, this is fairly and very logical. In terms of exposure by geography, I was reading somewhere that unlike a lot of the other startups, you are a little bit more exposed or have exposure to Europe. Why is that the case? And please give us a bit of a history behind that. And how do you think it's going to change going forward? Yeah, I think it really results from our organic motion early on where, you know, we did not raise funds when we, when we started out. So for three years, we had to figure out how to get free customers. And we did that through SEO, largely through SEO, through content marketing. And that is very much a worldwide thing, right? People that are searching for project management software are going to be searching it for every country even if it's in their native language, they're going to be searching for these things. And so that's what led to our largely, we are still today about 55 to 60% outside of the United States is where our revenue comes from. And that was very similar to what it was early on. 
So you normally you have startups that raise funds and they either hire a sales team early on, which generally are going to start in the U.S. because usually the revenue is higher in the U.S. and the efficiency becomes there. You also have this mentality of marketing in the U.S. because all, it, it, similarly, when you start to look at CAC payback and LTV, LTV generally is going to be higher in, in the U.S. And so that's usually, I think, how companies start in the U.S. higher. And for us, we started on that opposite end of the spectrum and then scaled that. We built sales teams locally in Europe and Australia and APAC. And then we also started marketing towards those customers. Yeah, you reminded me of a conversation I had with Salesforce a long time ago about this, this CAC payback. And part of the reason they did not expand internationally was because of the high cost of that. And that's why they went towards hyperscalers to get that done. What's your relationship with the cloud providers about your own infrastructure? Do you have your own data centers where you host that? Or are you tied up with one of the hyperscale cloud providers? We use AWS. Do you use their tools to, for your product development? Or do you have your own you know, application development tools? For the most part, we use our own application development tools and libraries. And we use some, some third parties as, as well. But largely, we're using AWS for, for infrastructure. And one of the things I've... You know, as I talk to people who think about the, the future of technology and then multi-cloud environments, et cetera, what's your take on it of how that shapes up over the next three to five years and do application providers, and it's not just yourself, but all of them will have to figure out how their product runs on multiple clouds or have a multiple backup. Otherwise, uh, you know, just too dependent on one, one particular hyperscale cloud provider. So for the past six months or so, we've actually been, been rebuilding a lot of our infrastructure and architecture in order to allow isolating env environments. And what that means is allowing customers to be on their own environment without having them host it. So there is this whole concept of on-premise versus off-premise hosting. And a lot of enterprise customers historically wanted to host their own data. They didn't want anybody to have access to it. That has really changed over time where enterprises are actually much more willing and many times prefer us hosting the software. And so we'll continue hosting the software, but allowing it to do them to have it in a very private environment. So more of a private cloud environment of their choosing. And I think that's more of the future of what really large companies want is the security and the awareness that their data is not interfering with anybody else's data. At the end of the day, they have controls over it and they have visibility in, into their data. And I think that that's more of what our, our strategy will continue to evolve for. And sim similarly, you see a lot of, as you mentioned, we're, we have a large European business and obviously EU data hosting is very important over there where they really want their data to stay inside of the EU. And that also enables people to, to our customers to retain their data only in the EU or only in the United States or in another region where they prefer. Yeah. I mean, I'm hearing this so much more in the last two years than ever before about what you just said. But then, you know, it's not a public cloud service, truly. It goes into a single tenant model where you have private cloud dedicated to a client. But I'm assuming that the backend technology is still the same for everybody. You're updating everybody is the same way. Can you please explain how that works? Let's say, you know, a client in Europe versus somebody who wants to a bank in the US versus a client that doesn't care. How do you customize that? Yeah, we have to put some guardrails in there because a, a point you bring up is, is largely with his, historically like on-prem versus off-prem software, an issue that comes up is everybody 
is on a different version. And because you're not rolling out versions automatically to everybody at the, the exact same time. And that can create a lot of problems because people are reporting bugs for a version where you've already fixed it in a different version. And at a small scale, it's fine. But when you have thousands of customers on thousands of different versions, it's just really hard to manage and hard to keep updated. So for us, we do enforce the same version across all of our cloud and infrastructure, and we don't have any plans to change that. What we do allow customers to do though, is, is largely opt in or out of new features that we add and changes that we add to our platform. We built that from the beginning to allow you to keep an area simple and also the other area complex. Like the examples I was giving earlier, you want a marketing workspace to feel simple, but an engineering one to feel, to feel more complex. The way that we built our product allows us to really turn on or off, actually customers enables them to turn on or off pretty much any feature inside of the product. So we don't really have that same bottleneck of customers saying, hey, I don't want the new version because it's going to change so many things for us. And there's change management. Really largely, they're fine with the new version and they just know that they can turn on or off different features. Yeah, this has been my biggest issue with trying to scale up a cloud product is exactly what you just mentioned. So I'm, I'm actually very intrigued by your ability to turn off and on some features. I may have to do some more work on it. Machine learning and AI. I mean, this is a buzzword that we hear way too many people talk about. Perhaps give some idea or examples that in your product suite, how are you helping people enhance their productivity using some of the tools? Yeah, it's, it's funny because I largely avoid talking about it because I feel like it's such, it's such a buzz thing. But the reality is we do use machine learning for several pieces of our product. And in the next, I hope six months to a year, we'll be rolling out a productivity measurement tool that allows organizations to really measure productivity, which is very, very, very hard and challenging to do. The viewpoint that we took for measuring productivity, though, is that you cannot compare company to other company. It, there's so many things that are different about a company that it's impossible to create this global objective score where you can rate a company from another company. An example of that is you have, a, and by the way, productivity, it's your work output over time. So you have company A that has amazing everything, right? Amazing marketing department, creative engineering. You got company B that has bad engineering, bad marketing, et cetera. Well, you have that work output. Let's say that you have an initiative A that you want to complete. Company A finishes it quicker and they do a higher quality job. Company B finishes it maybe at the same time, but they do a really bad job at it. You can't compare the work quality from company A to company B, even though you may be able to, to compare the productivity, how fast it got done. And so what we've taken the lens of is that you need to measure productivity inside of your company and it's relative to everything else that you get done. And that's what we've been working on in the background is, is machine learning enabling customers to really measure productivity because it's a huge topic and it's a huge problem for companies with the inability to have any type of index on what work is getting done over time. No, benchmarking and indexes is truly important. I agree with you. Now, within that time frame, I just, you know, taking this question in a different direction, these customers, do you then teach them and say, listen, you're not doing this properly. There might be a better way for you to go out and utilize this thing because they're probably just using 10% of the functions that you have. How do you go about doing that? And it does that add a lot of cost to your setup? Yeah, for our customer success organization and, and solutions are really great at providing customers the direction to get the most out of our platform. And 
the issue is that it's largely up to the individual today to do that. We certainly have some metrics, uh, some of them I mentioned around how many products they're using that they can go in there and present new ways to do things. But there's no objective way of saying, hey, your company is not as productive as it should be. And these are the ways you can be way more productive if you get your teams to work this, this way. And that's what we really want to be able to accomplish in the next six months to a year. Good. So Zeb, we've so, so much, such a fun conversation. We're almost out of time. So let me ask you one question now. The last one would be, what emerging technolo technologies are exciting you most right now that you think you get embed in your product suite over the next, you know, let's say three years? I would actually say the most frustrating technology today is chat software. I think Slack and Microsoft Teams are highly distracting and very, very inefficient. You go into them and you check everything first, and then you mark things unread or you take notes for, oh, I need to do this later. Whereas in my opinion, it should be the other way around. You're, you should be presented with the work that you need to do now and the most important messages you need to get to. And then you get to everything else after you're done. And you can go into that with a much more mindful experience. I think we've become too synchronous when it comes to chat. There, there's a time and place for Zoom calls, for sure. There's a time and place for meetings. But when it comes to chat, the vast majority of chat does not need to be immediate and instantaneous. And I think it's much more inefficient than it needs to be. So this is, is the real technology that we've been working on in the background the past year or so is to provide a new way of chatting that is much more efficient and uses a little bit of machine learning to prioritize your notifications and tells you, hey, you're mentioned here. And this is about a task that is assigned to you and has an urgent priority. We need to show you this now. Whereas the other things else, we don't need to show you everything else yet. You can continue upon your day and stay in your, your focus mode. Now, this is excellent, Zeb. Enjoyed this thoroughly. Would love to see what happens to your company a year from now, two years from now. Look forward to our next discussion. Thanks so much for coming and, um, and see you soon. Thanks so much for having me on, Arag.